Overdue this week is brought to you by Tell Me a Story Season 2 premiering on CBS All Access. Created by Kevin Williamson, Tell Me a Story takes the world's most well-known fairy tales and reimagines them as a dark and twisted psychological thriller. Exploring an entirely new set of characters, this new season features three legendary stories, Beauty and the Beast, Sleeping Beauty, and Cinderella, like you've never seen them before. Tell Me a Story will follow one family who is at the heart of the series. Carrie Ann Moss is the matriarch of the Pruitt family, and all the stories are wrapped around her family's lives. And it's not just Carrie Ann Moss on the show. It's Paul Wesley, best known for his role in The Vampire Diaries, as well as Danielle Campbell from The Originals, and a whole host of stellar actors. You can get each new episode of Tell Me a Story every Thursday exclusively on CBS All Access. Sign up today for CBS All Access by visiting cbs.com slash overdue. Get your first week of CBS All Access for free and stream the new season of Tell Me a Story every Thursday. That's cbs.com slash overdue to get your first week of CBS All Access free. This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. And my name is Laura. Whoa, you're not Andrew. Sure I'm not. Where is he? Uh, I assume he's at his own home because we are in our home and he's not here. He is not here. That's true. We gave him the week off um, as he is still a new parent. He could use the breaks when he can get them. And we figured we would do an episode. I asked you if you would do an episode a long time ago, around when they had their kid or sooner. Uh, some point. Some point. So we've been working on this one for a while. Welcome back, honey. Thanks. Um, so we are talking about The Secret River by Kate Grenville. I couldn't see the cover and I panicked. Yes. <laughs> the Secret River <laughs> by Kate Grenville. She Kate is Grenville. a... Uh, Apparently, well-known Australian author. Yes. Um, unknown to me until reading this book, but um, she has written a number of things. Um, did you want to talk at all about any of those? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Welcome. <laughs> if you've never listened to the show before, uh, my normal co-host, Andrew, is not here. As I said, he's off. My wife, Laura, is here. This is her fourth appearance on the show, um, and each week... One of the hosts, whoever they may be, reads a book and tells the other person and the listening audience about it. Uh, it's usually books we have not read before. So this is our first book of December. It was a Patreon recommendation from a longtime supporter, Kathy, who has very patiently waited for us to read this book. Um, and we'll, I want to bring up what she said about the book a little bit later once we get into what the book's about, because she specifically mentions she's an Australian and, oh, terrific. And, Thanks for recommending. Yeah. Um, so Grenville uh, was born in Sydney, Australia in 1950. Uh, she did go to University of Colorado to get uh, a degree in creative writing in 1980. Uh, and she'd been working in the film and television industry, in editing documentaries and things for Film Australia. That it's, seems about right. Yeah, it seems kind of neat. 
Um, and she did go back there after getting her degree and then started publishing in the 80s. Uh, her first thing was a short story collection called Bearded Ladies. Um, she won the Orange Prize in 2000 for a book called The Idea of Perfection, which seems to be a pretty, like, I don't narrowly focused sounds pejorative, but that's not what I mean. It's like confined to a relationship between two people. It's somewhat unlikely and they make it through and it's moving and it's about love. Um, all the, all the citations about it for the orange prize made it sound like it was a surprise, (laughs) which is always fun. A surprise for the prize, if you will. Yes. Um, she has received several honorary degrees, uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Australia Council. Um, and a lot of it, I think, probably stems from this book being published in 2005 and onward. This one was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, which I think is like an English language book award, um, among other prizes that it won. It was turned into a play a very successful stage production, and then it was also made into a TV miniseries, I think like a two-part miniseries in Australia, starring Sarah Snook of Succession, who I just learned was Australian when we started watching Succession. Yes. Where did you didn't find where one might watch that? No, I imagine it's out there on the internet. On the internet, perhaps. Okay. Preview of your take on the book is that you're intrigued to watch a miniseries adaptation of it. Um, Yeah, I would say that I would be interested in seeing how that would be portrayed. I think something that's fascinating about reading um, historical fiction, which this is, based in an area of the world that you have little understanding of during that time period, or truly even now, I don't know that much about Australia Mm -hmm. or life on that continent. Um, It would be interesting to see how it would be visually represented by people from that yeah. area of the world. Sure. Um, not my Western American raised mind imagining things as they're described. Um, though that's a good way to read, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One has to use their imagination. Um, but it would be interesting um, to, to really see that from the eyes of folks who are more connected to that history. Yes. Um, so that would be interesting. Good to know. Um, so this book, as I said, was published in 2005. It's the first in what she has started being like calling her colonial trilogy, mm-hmm. um, with the Lieutenant in 2008, which is set two decades before the events of this book. This is when 18 something um, turn of turn of the century. Let me see if I can find an actual 1880. Um, and it's also followed by Sarah Thornhill, which is published in 2011, which I think is the about the youngest daughter from this yes. book. Okay. So um, Sarah Thornhill is the youngest child of William Thornhill, who is the central character of The Secret River. And uh, from my understanding, while it's referred to as a trilogy, you they are each standalone novels so you don't need to have read the secret river to understand sarah thornhill sure or the lieutenant certainly the lieutenant since that is before previous in history so you wouldn't necessarily need to know that um, unless it's just context for what's happening in that area over the next you know 100 years basically yeah um anything else you got about 
Kate, well, you wanted to talk about? No, not much about her. I mean, the the thing about this book is it, it you know, it's set in 1800-something. Um, the, the date I have from one summary is 1806 is when the main character's, like, sentence is commuted. Yes, I believe so, that's correct. Um, and so it is about, like, unpacking a lot of Australia's founding settler myths, mm-hmm. it seems. Um, and it's gotten pushback from folks who love their pioneer history, as well as historians who don't like when fiction or who would urge caution when we use fiction to explore the past rather than just fact. Yeah, I think that there is a camp of people who are frustrated by historical fiction because they believe that authors of historical fiction choose to tell the stories that they want to rather than the stories that should be told. Now the should is, I would say in quotation marks there, because depending on who you're talking to and what their view of history is, Mm -hmm. um, the Mm -hmm. stories that should be told and the viewpoint from which those get told are not necessarily in line with each other. Um, But I think that, so Kate Granville um, started researching this from a place of researching her own ancestry um, and her own, I think it's three times great grandfather. Yeah, my um, notes say G3 grandpa. So I think it's G3 great, great, grandpa. Great. Yes. <laughs> so I think it's great, great, great. Um, and um, how he came to New South Wales um, near Sydney in the same time period that William Thornhill, that the main character does um, from London by way of Australia being a penal colony for um, the United Kingdom. After researching her own 3G grandpa, um, (laughs) who was a waterman on the Thames River, so he was um, apprenticed and uh, worked on boats that were taking not only people, but also coal and wood and various other things back and forth across the river or up and down the river with the tides, um, got busted for stealing um, and went in to prison basically and was sentenced to either death by hanging or being sent to Australia. Okay. Um, So that is where... Grenville was able to get a lot of records on her grandfather, um, including trial records. Um, The Old Bailey, which is where the trial took place, apparently kept meticulous records so she could even read like statements statements from him or something um, and, you know, defense for himself. Um, After that, her path kind of ran dry on her ancestor um, until she could find successes that he had later in life um, as a settler in Australia. Um, and so it got her wondering what happened in between there. Um, and she was actually, um, present for, um, a walk in 2000 that was a walk of both indigenous and non-indigenous peoples, um, across, I believe it's the Harbor Bridge, um, in Sydney, which was part of what they called the walk for reconciliation, Uh, During that walk, um, she was deep into this research um, and met eyes with a woman about her own age who was of Aboriginal descent. Um, And she describes it um, in the reader's notes as a warm moment where she realized 
that her three times great grandfather was on the land at the same time that that woman's three times great grandfather was on the land and what might've happened had the two of them had the chance to meet um, and sort of sparked her on the more, I guess, fictitious in terms of characters, but real based on the amount of history that she was able to research. Um, So nobody in the book is with the extent, with the exception of like the governor's name and oh, some sure. like military no one's a real person. nobody is a real person. Okay. Though I'm sure in the history of the world, there have been many William Thornhills. Sure. Um, but if you are a William Thornhill listening, let us know, let us know how you feel about this book. If you've ever heard of it. Um, I also found in her notes that 1988, which was, you know, around when she started becoming a professional author and things like that is the bicentennial of, um, settling in Australia, or at least UK settling. And so there were plans for celebrations and things like that. And there were obvious pushbacks um, in a similar way that here in America, there is greater, though perhaps probably not enough, um, awareness around what the original quote-unquote Thanksgiving was here in America um, between British colonists and uh, I think the Wampanoag people. Um here here in North America. So it's interesting that that was kind of brewing and then this this walk happened and that kind of led her, as you said, from writing a biography of her G3 grandpa to a fictional account that could get at themes bigger than her own ancestry, right? Yeah, she, she mentions in the reader's notes in while telling the story of meeting eyes with the um, Aboriginal woman, that suddenly the bland phrase in the family story of, quote, he took up land started to split open. He didn't just take up land. He actually took land from people who had been living on it for 40,000 years and what happened when he did that. And that sort of opened her mind in a new way, um, which I think is sort of very poetic and, she is a writer, so she is one to be poetic. <laughs> yeah, I buy that. Uh, let's take a quick break, and then uh, we'll come back and talk about what the book actually is about. All righty, sounds good. Hey, Andrew, it's good to see you here in the ad break. Hey, it's good to see me here, too. I want. I'm just, I'm just, I just want everybody to know the most important thing to me is to make money, and so that's what I show up for. Great. Well, the book, the books, the book stuff, I could take or leave. Well, this this is where this is where my heart is. We have an opportunity to make more money, Andrew. I need to tell our listeners about uh the one a project by one of our illustrious Patreon supporters, Chris. Uh, wanted us to talk about La Mancha, which is an award-winning storytelling card game from Pie for Breakfast Studios, where you battle your friends one minute and declare love to them the next. And it's based on the novel Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes. This how- is how I live my life with my <laughs> friends. Is one minute, one minute we're battling, next minute. I'm telling them I love them. In La Mancha, it's hot and cold. <laughs> you are knights on a heroic journey, and you use cards to describe uh, your chivalric adventures, battling giants, or are they windmills, wooing loves, and winning treasure? Uh, I've played the game. You definitely do that, and it is very fun. <laughs> um, you get to like tell stories and make up stuff, which is really cool. But then there's also like equipable equipable gear and almost like D&D mechanics. It's a cool Ooh. vibe. Neat. 
Uh, it is designed for both Don Quixote aficionados and people who've never even heard of the book, uh, and La Mancha introduces players to Cervantes' world and encourages them to make it their own. Andrew, how can people get this game? They can go to pfbstudios.com slash shop to learn more about the game and pick it up for 30 bucks. Uh, but 30 bucks? No, not 30 bucks. You can apply the coupon code OVERDUE until December 31st, 2019 to get $5 off of that. So not 30 bucks, 25 bucks. Doesn't that sound fun? That sounds great. La Mancha. All right, so we're back. And it sounds like this book might get kind of heavy. Is that true? Uh, yes, there are parts of it that are extremely heavy. So we might need to lighten things up along the way. Like there's not like a gonna be a lot of goofs is what you're saying no <laughs> okay so i brought it's not a laugh out loud book <laughs> no okay so i brought some facts that maybe they won't be like goofs but they'll at least kind of like you know keep us lighter or you know give us some respite from the heavy stuff along the way. did you know these are Australia facts. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that Australia is the only continent without an active volcano? I did not know that. I wouldn't have been able to guess that. Do any of the islands surrounding it? Probably. Where's the Ring of Fire? I don't know. Uh, okay, Johnny. Yeah, that's me. Um, so I have more Australia facts. I don't know volcano facts. I just brought Australia ones. All right. I didn't know what other follow-up facts you would want. I should have looked that up. I'm sorry. Um, I mentioned earlier that Kathy, our Patreon supporter who recommended the book, um, is Australian and mentioned that in her note. Um, she said, I'm personally interested in this book because my ancestors were also emancipated convicts who were neighbors of Weissman, who is, uh, I think, the original guy from years ago. The G3 grandpa. The G3 grandpa. (laughs) um, But I think it would be an interesting read for anyone who lives in a country with a history of European indigenous violence. Um, In in Australia, this history has basically been pushed under the carpet for over 100 years, and it's only now historians are trying to write histories of contact between the two cultures rather than writing two completely separate histories of the, quote, hardworking white convict um, and that, quote, nasty white settler killing poor defenseless aboriginal people. Um, without acknowledging that they were usually the same person. And also because original Aboriginal people weren't defenseless and did fight back because their lives were under threat. So it sounds like that jives with what you experienced in the novel. So let me ask what it's about. Um, so uh, Grenville actually starts, the book is broken up into six parts, um, but before part one is a short excerpt um, that she just titles Strangers. Um, And that's from the first night that William Thornhill, his wife, Sal or Sarah, um, and their two eldest children are in Australia the first night. Okay. And the other three are asleep and William cannot sleep. He's in a strange land, obviously. Um, and he's they're asleep in a hut and he she says there was hardly a door barely a wall only a flap of bark a screen of sticks and mud 
There was no need of a lock, of a door, of a wall. This was a prison whose bars were 10,000 miles of water. So the isolation is set in the first paragraph of the book, and he steps out of the doorway into the darkness of the wild um, and realizes he cannot see any of the stars that he is used to seeing in London and then realizes they're stirring in the dark and realizes that there's a man in front of him and finds his voice for the first time since he's been imprisoned, which is a number of years, to basically scream at this man to go away um, in hopes that he can protect his family. And the man does, but that's William Thornhill's first interaction with an Aboriginal man. And then section one, um, or part one, I should say, um, jumps back to London when William Thornhill is a boy. Huh. So it starts with a literal first contact. Yes. Which is kind of neat because then it sets it up as a as a first contact story, even though it isn't explicitly such because he's going to get sent to a penal colony that already exists right Right. okay um at what point does the book name the aboriginal peoples specifically because my research says that they're the darug or the darug people i don't believe that the book ever names them okay um i could be wrong they may have mentioned it at one point um there are a few um like somebody reads a decree from the governor and there may be something in that, but I don't believe that they're given the respect of having any sort of name. Sure. Um, Because, yeah, because I think the Daruk people are native to the Sydney area, which is where this is like basically set, right? Yes. Um, It is set, spoilers, the secret river is the Hawkesbury River that's north of Sydney that goes inland of the continent. Not so secret, eh? (laughs) It's very much on maps now. Um, yeah there you go that's a goof right it's a goof okay (laughs) just like keep score at home how many goofs we can squeeze into this heavy (laughs) novel so okay so now we're back in i guess like dickensian england london um and funny you should mention that because as i was reading through this i felt like this was the part of the book that kind of took a long time for me. I remember that. Um, you, had, you had started this book a while ago, and you're like, oh, is this, we're just living in Dickensian land. What is this about? Yeah, and it made me, um, not that it was not well written, but I've read Dickens. Mm. And in as much as probably I'm going to by reading other people's words, I get it. He was really poor. You know, his family had no food. He was one of many children. Wait, are you talking about Dickens or Thornhill right now? Well, Thornhill, but okay. the the general state of life was not great if you were not the gentry. I get it. I'm just here for you dragging the entirety of Dickens' work because, not because you dislike the work, but because you only have one life and you can only read so many books. So why only read stuff you've read already? And I suppose that's unfair in a number of ways, but that's the way that I felt reading it. I was I was excited to get to yeah. Australia. I was sure. excited to enter into um, a portion of history that I was not as familiar with, that I had not read about previously in historical fiction or nonfiction or was not familiar with from seeing films and sure, things yeah. like that. Um, 
So that part kind of dragged on a little bit for me. Um, <laughs> but that's okay. It's It laid the groundwork. <laughs> so, so I did find an article um, by Sabina Murray for LitHub.com in 2016 called What Can Historical Fiction Accomplish That History Does Not? And of course, I, rec- I thought this might be a good book for you to read because you do like historical fiction in general. Um, and she said one of the things that historical fiction can and, and usually does is historical fiction distinguishes itself by occupying a culture rendered alien to the reader through passage of time. And then like writes this really lovely article using our perception of time as, as a linchpin for her argument. Um, but kind of what you're pointing out is like you've encountered a bunch of Dickens already right. through media here in the present and what this book offered was a secret river, not the Thames Correct. that you could go to and you would like to get there. So, like, give me the real quick elevator pitch on his Jean Valjean experience. I'm mixing countries now. Sure um, are. So that we can get to the good part. All right. So he was... um as many were in that time, one of a number of children in his household. Um, and Boring. They never had enough food. And uh, he, as a child, befriended and began to have an affection for this girl, Sarah, who actually, uh, while having many brothers and sisters, was the only surviving child of their family. Um, no other brothers and sisters survived past infancy. So she was somewhat spoiled, I guess. Um, he ended up relatively, I suppose, relatively (laughs) not super well off, but, um, her father was a waterman and was who, uh, Thornhill apprenticed with Okay, as he grew older and they were married and had a son in London, uh, before he got, uh, in trouble and arrested for stealing lumber, um, on the river, um, which put him in prison for a while, and then had the trial at the Old Bailey that said, you can either hang or we can send you to Australia. Sure. Any exploration of like the criminal justice system, really just a a way to get us to the new part? Um, I mean, there's there's a scene in the trial itself um, and a number of moments where he's looking at Sal, who is at this point, I guess early stages of pregnancy okay um like wondering what's gonna happen yeah on the boat ride to australia he is under decks as a felon and she and the boy are not and um their second child is born during the journey oh wow so when they arrive in australia the second son is a baby i think a hundred years ago, per capita, probably more people were born at sea than now. Probably. Just because more people were on boats and the boats <laughs> took longer, more yeah. likely that you might. I also don't think it's recommended that extremely pregnant people take cruises. No, probably not. Mostly just because you're far away from Which is really the only time that that the majority of us are on boats for long periods of time, unless that's your job, in which case, why are you working? I don't think you're a deep sea fisherman if you're eight months pregnant. Let's hope not. Could be wrong. But (laughs) people gotta do what they gotta do. People need leave to give people leave so they don't have to be deep sea fisher people (laughs) while they're (laughs) so pregnant. Anyway, so they make it to Australia. He has two kids. You were saying like there's like 
I we got there because I was asking how it portrays like any additional like criminal justice stuff. It's mostly the experience of being a felon while your son is born above deck. Yeah. So he has um, the skills of obviously having worked on the water for most of his working life, um, which, as we know from Dickensian times, starts very young. Sure. Um, and um, so he works um, sort of is a servant of other folks in the colony um, and uh, works his way into getting a pardon a few like a maybe it's like two years or something um after they've arrived so basically he got a pardon and he is somewhat free Mm. but he can't ever go back to london okay and a theme throughout the whole book is that sal his wife desperately wants to go home she wants to go home to london um and they make a deal that he can probably uh, save enough money after five years that they could go home, even though he knows that that would never happen. Is he keeping um, that secret river from her? The river itself? No, you. I just wanted to make a joke. <laughs> is is he being upfront with her about that, or is he like, "Oh, we'll make a plan for five years from now"? They they make a, a plan, um, but he grows more realistic every day that that's not going to happen. Um, and as they have more children, um, he also comes to the realization that the place that they call home, his children will never, they'll never know know it. Yeah. And it will not be in their memories. It will not, nothing will make sense to them. Um, and when you're gone for so many years from a place, you also start to lose your memory of what those are. So there's a scene later on in the book where, Sal tries singing songs from her childhood in London and tries like walking the children via story through the streets of London. And, you know, to the, you take a left, you go this way and you get to the church of St. Mary Magdalene. And if you go this way, you get to this. And um, he's realizing that she, even she has not remembered things in the way that they actually is he are. Correcting she's, her while she's singing. No. Song? Okay. Cause that would suck. No. Um, <laughs> But he also gets to the point where um, uh, he's been traveling um, with this other man who has been there longer than him um, and has settled up on the banks of the Hawkesbury River. And they're going up and down and up and down. And he falls in love with a piece of land up the secret river, um, which How he calls very Thornhill Point. <laughs> um, and, What's this um, dude's name? Do you remember? Is it uh, Blackthorn? Yeah, Blacktown? Um is blackwood Blackwood. i raced you blackwood okay beat me i did beat you um i think blackthorn's a video game don't worry about it all right so he falls in love with dirt and he falls in love with this idyllic piece of land okay um, this idyllic point that is on the river that would allow him um with his uh eventually purchased boat the hope um to continue to travel up and down the river um, collecting goods from other people who have settled on the river, crops and limestone and various other things, um, and bring things back down to Sydney to trade. Um, Very, and bring them it back seems up. like good avenue for commerce. It does, and it seems like that land would be a great place to settle, um, but they're not the first ones to do so. 
Weird. Hence the problems. <laughs> Weird how that works. Before we get into the problems, let me share with you another fact about Australia. It's the only continent that still has all three of the major mammal groups. Do you know what the mammal groups are? No. They are placental mammals. Okay. Mar- marsupials. Sure. And the monotremes. Is a monotreme a platypus? Yeah, and the echidna. They lay eggs. Hmm. So it's the three forms of how mammals can have kids. I see. All in Australia. Hmm. So the problems. There are no platypi <laughs> in this book. That's a problem. <laughs> That's a big problem. <laughs> to me, personally. To you, personally. I don't know about the characters in the book. <laughs> um, so, okay, so he's going to try and take this beautiful land that he has it on for, um, but it's someone else's, right? Yes. So they settle and clear a plot of land um, and build a small hut. Um, and they are going to plant corn because basically he's been told if you can turn land once, it's yours. Oh, who's basically. he been told that by? All the other white people, white people yeah. in Sydney, okay. I guess. What a cool rule. <laughs> um, he has a number of children. His Oldest, I believe, is also a William Thornhill. Um, there's a long line of William Thornhills, um, which we learned about back in the Dickensian London. Cool, time cool, period. cool. Boring, boring, boring. Yeah. Um, he has um, a son named Dick. That's the one born on the boat? Yes, I believe yeah. that's correct. He has another son who they call Bub. And then uh, I believe there's another son named Johnny. He's got three boys, maybe? Like four boys, I think. And then the little girl is Sarah. Okay. Sarah Thornhill of the sequel book. She's not grown up. Yes, 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 yes. Um, They have a number of interactions um, with the native people of the land and are sort of... Thornhill has never been a soldier in any capacity. Okay. Um, so it's not until he's actually in Australia that anybody tells him that he should learn how to fire a gun, Huh? which well, I don't know how common that would have been at that period of time. No idea. I have no But he sense. did grow up very poor. So well, if he hadn't been conscripted into military service. And he's not hunting for his food. No. Huh. Okay. That being said, there are a bunch of lizards. Delicious. In Thornhill Point, that they do not eat, but they know that the natives do. Anywho. So they're teaching him how to fight. Why, why do they need him to have a gun? Um, because he is told that the, I guess they call them savages, um, that they are afraid of weapons. That they are oh. afraid of guns. So he needs to have that, um, even though it's a skill that he doesn't possess and he's never comfortable holding a gun the entire Book. time sure he is constantly in awe of the aboriginal men who hold spears like they're an extension of their own body mm. um and at one point after a somewhat hostile interaction um he decides it's necessary to clear a wider berth of their hut um because the problem is is you can't see them when they are nearby um which means a spear can fly from anywhere and it would hit you before you would even 
know that it had like a good tactic yeah to be perfectly honest um and uh the problem is he doesn't know how far a spear can be thrown Um, i don't know how yeah who knows the olympics (laughs) i don't know um throughout this time um they've had a sort of semi-friendly relationship with the aboriginal people who live near them they're trying to trade a little bit because they've been told by some people that if you give a little you can get a little yeah i read a little Um, bit that like the natives that he meets are able to like at least imitate english pretty quickly and he is not able to like speak their language do you remember that at all he never speaks their language at all i think occasionally they'll speak some english but they are making an effort and presumably um i would say more that they've learned it over the course of interacting with a number of different settlers so um i don't believe that they are locked into that land they are hunter gatherers so they move up and down the river um so they've met a number of the settlers that have claimed land on the river um some of which are more amiable than Than others others. yeah okay so the spear issue yes so it's a good way to say that dick one of the sons actually has like gone off and been adventurous and um basically befriends the Aboriginal people and the children. And these folks are naked all of the time. And so when Dick goes to play with them, he also takes off his breeches and plays in the water and things like that. So like you do. he can understand more of the language. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, and when they're having this moment where they need to clear more land for how far a spear can throw and yada, da, they get, not a actual spear, but like a long straight stick. Um, and Thornhill himself tries to throw it just to see like, how far do we need to go? Um, and he's terrible at it. And his young son picks it up and throws it with ease. And he realizes that's not the first time. Oh no. That his son is probably of course thrown not. That. And it goes, I don't know, like 50 feet or something. Like it goes a, a ways. 50 feet seems like not enough. Like, I feel like a way, like... But I he's bet. also a white boy. Oh, sure. Who is, I don't know, maybe 10? <laughs> okay, I didn't... I The way you were saying it, I thought he was like a teen, and he was like, you know, throwing a, a Hail Mary pass. But no, he's no. a 10-year-old. But he's feet throwing might be a very impressive... impressive. Okay. It just shows Thornton Hill that, like, there's, there's so much he doesn't know. Yes, okay. Um, and, and, it, and his children are capable of learning it and interested in learning it. At least that child. At least that child. Okay. Yeah. Whoa. Not the other ones. Let me share a quick fact because it sounds like we're going to hit more problems. Only The only continent other than Antarctica to not have native hoofed animals is Australia. There are no hoofed animals native to Australia. Aren't there any like gazelles or anything there's a bunch of like like camels and stuff and kangaroos there are camels in australia yeah it's like a huge camel population but they don't have hooves Hmm. they've got like toes or whatever i don't a good hand gesture you just did for camel toes (laughs) wait whoa (laughs) 
no, that's not. Wait, this is an audio medium. That's not what I did. Sorry, friends. Let's move on. Um, how, are we moving quickly enough through this book, do you think? I don't want to rush you, but... Um, yeah, I think there's there's a good portion uh, that sort of just focuses on life in the settled areas. In in a, like, Swiss Family Robinson, but maybe not as bad sort of way? Is he, like, making... What is his relationship to the people who share this land or whose land he has decided to share, rather? Um, is he sharing it, first and foremost, I guess? I would say for the most part, it's amiable. However, when a number of the settlers from this section of the river get together, um, that's when stories of savage attacks happen and fear gets spread and you learn the difference between like the old widow who lives on the water that is like, if you're nice to them, they'll be nice to you trade them for things they're reasonable yeah um and the other a number of other men particularly who are extremely hateful and extremely violent and when a decree from the government gets printed that these people are hostile and that settlers are not only encouraged but or not only permissed but encouraged to take them out if they are a danger to their land or their crops or their way of life. So we end up at a point where probably for a lot of outside white people reasons, these Aboriginal people are taking, taking to the fields of these settlers. So there are, there's a night when um, the oldest son, Willie comes running into the hut and says they're in the corn and they're taking the crops which is a detriment to their livelihood. And this is in the first year that they're there. So it's all happening in a pretty short time frame. So Thornhill feels like he's made a number of strides. He's got this land. He's got this business. Um, He was actually able to get two felons off a boat similar to the one that he came on to now work for him. Mm. Um, So he himself has like risen in the world. He is Mr. Thornhill, which he never tires of hearing. Of course. Um, They go out into the field and they sort of attack as best they can. And he fires his gun in an attempt to scare them away and all of these things. Um, And that's sort of it. That's Sal's had it. She says, I'll be packed in an hour. We're out of here. Like Like she's going to go get on a plane today. I mean, if she could, she would have. (laughs) So what's her plan? Um, She knows that they don't have the money to go back to London yet because, again, their five-year plan. Um, But she says, we can go back to Sydney. We can go to, I guess, Richmond might be further up the river and was settled as like an actual small metro area. They made a town up there. There's like government up there um, and uh, lived the rest of their time in this place in a more civilized quote unquote quote unquote uh area um and in the midst of this um one of the um servants comes and says that there's an attack on another uh settler and so he needs to go and help um 
all of this sort of comes to a head, uh, and this is near the end of the book, um, where they've basically, uh, after helping this man who had a spear through his chest. An Aboriginal man or a white man? No, a white man. Okay. Um, They put him on the Hope boat and take him upriver to, I think it's Richmond. Okay. Um, And uh, basically there's no surviving a spear of that. I would not imagine. (laughs) He's alive the entire way until it's taken out of him when they're in the town. Um, And that sort of scream followed by immense silence is something that Thornhill says will ring in his ears forever. I I imagine it would. Um, And that person who has passed is one of the settlers that they have been sort of a part of their little community, I guess. Um, And so in a pub that night, um, a bunch of men rally together and say, we've got to take care of it. Um, We can do it. Um, They settle. One of their placements is um, near the land where Blackwood has settled. Okay. Um, Blackwood has been nice to the Aboriginal people. And in fact, Thornhill thinks he's the only one who knows, but other people do as well, um, that he has actually fathered children with some of the women. Blackwood has. Yes. Okay. Um, so not only is he friendly with them, they share life together in their little spot of paradise. Um, and uh, there is a pretty vivid depiction of all of these men descending upon that camp um, and basically massacring all of the Aboriginal people. And I think this was based on a real... Correct. Th- this is based on, I think it was the the Waterloo Creek killings in 1838, is the notes that I saw. Um, yes, I believe that's correct. Um, and the... this So I found that from um, Grenville's website, which has a pretty good breakdown of what some of her research was in her own words. Um, mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that in just a second after we get the rest but yeah this is based on real events it's not she's not like fabricating this even though it might be set in a slightly different part of australia or whatever it might be and what sort of seals the deal for thornhill um is he's the only one with the boat so without his without his boat these men cannot all get to the place where the massacre happens and one of his servants basically looks at him and says like Sal will leave if you don't take care of business, basically. Whoa. And he realizes he's right with him or without him. She will find a way to leave their Thornhill point. If he doesn't take care of like, if he doesn't participate in the massacre, um, not necessarily participate, but make sure that they will not come back. That who will not come back? The Aboriginal people. Okay. I'm I'm trying to figure out where Sal is. On. So Sal is back at the hut. Okay. Um, I meant she I meant, never. I didn't mean literally. I no, meant, I know, I but um, she is never. They never speak of it, mm. though he assumes that she knows that he was part of it. Okay. Um, so he did participate. He did participate. He's the one who took all of the men by boat. I think he may have only fired his gun like once. But still. As if that matters. Okay. Um, 
he is he is the eyes through which you watch and that's an interesting way to do it to he is complicit and he does participate even if he is not like firing round after round correct like he enables it and allows it to happen sure like many others that are named characters and non-named characters um he does not personally sling clubs and slit throats and fire off portions of human um but he is there he is present and these are these are aboriginal people who he recognizes yeah yeah and these are not just men these are women and children and elderly and so when he comes back she's sal is packed and ready to go and he can say they're not coming Hmm. they'll never come back they will never be a problem again and she takes his word for it and the final part of the book is him as an older man um and he is now a wealthy settler um and has a house of stone that irishman built for him and there's a walled garden that sal wants a traditional english garden um of which most things don't grow in because things that grow in the UK don't grow in the Southern hemisphere in the same way. Um, She has dreams of a poplar line drive up to the house. um, Man, I thought Sal was going to be cool. (laughs) I thought Sal was going to be with it, but apparently not. I think she is. um, She loves her husband. I would say maybe because he's the only man besides her father who was ever going to love her in the, mm. in that way. Mm. Um, and she cares for her children immensely. Um, and after the largest threat is gone, she feels they can survive. Um, mm. And she, the entire time has been marking days on a tree, like a, prisoner might on a cell wall interesting um and uh after the youngest baby sarah um is sick with some kind of fever and needs to be tended to at all hours of the day during that illness she stops marking the tree and when the baby is better she does not continue and thornhill realizes okay now we've really surpassed the point where not only I know we're not going back to London, but she also knows we're not going back to London and she's no longer tracking that. Does it end with them like just feeling good about themselves and their poplar garden or kind of mm, really like yeah. there's not even like, oh, my friends don't like me anymore or my well, like what happened with Dick, his son? Ah, good question. So there is a day when he is a late teenager um, where he goes off the land, takes a little uh, skid boat uh, and goes up and spends, I guess we're led to believe, the rest of his life or at least the rest of Blackwood's life with Blackwood. Oh. So Blackwood runs in to try and protect any of the Aboriginal people that he can during the massacre okay um is injured gets a head injury and has like long-lasting vision problems from that and dick goes and spends time Time caring for him um and actually starts running blackwood's boat at some point and it's sort of a a stab in 
Thornhill's heart every time anybody refers to his son as Dick Blackwood instead of Dick Thornhill. So he does lose something. He does lose something. Okay. He does sort of have a lingering concern and fear and respect for the, I guess, the way of life that he never understood. Mm. Um, So he spends every evening on his veranda of his stone house that is not quite perfect. Um, Things are crooked. Some stones are too big. Some stones are too small. Things are a little crooked. Um, But he spends every night watching the cliffs in the forest with his eyeglass telescope thing because he still believes that he can see these folks that will come back. Mm. And he's not scared, but he's, I don't know, it's maybe like a strange kind of reverence maybe mm, interesting. Um, just knowing that they can be out there and he would never know. Well, and it also sounds what you were just talking about. His place there will never be perfectly in harmony with the land he's living on. Like it right. will, it will never quite fit. Yes. Even though this will be the only land that his children and his children's children and his children's children know. It's not, he knows it yeah. as not as yeah. clean and idyllic as it once was. They actually end up, I believe, building the stone house atop where the settlement of the Aboriginal people was. So he's literally atop where they had lived on his land. Huh. Okay. Um, so it's not, it's sort of a somber ending, I guess. It from what I mean, I... he succeeds in a lot of ways. He has money. He has but as success. much power as he can being an ex-felon. And I mean, if we're, Talking about the 3G grandpa, there's Wiseman's Ferry in New South Wales, Australia, she that is named, named for him. him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So he is wealthy enough to get to get that named after him um, and um, be a businessman. And um, but it sounds like she's interested in like, okay, so that happened, and that guy did make a bunch of money, but like, at what cost? Who? who did lose out in that, in those transactions. Mm -hmm. It was, it wasn't white people and it, but it does sound like in your retelling of it, Grenville's aim of approaching this without judgment, but just investigation seems to have worked. Like in everything she says about this book, she was like, I'm not here to like, these things were bad and presenting them and exploring them should be enough. I don't need to, add another layer of judgment? Do you think that that is what the book is up to? Yeah, I mean, she always, she says in her sort of notes that she is very aware that this is fiction, but that she intentionally based it on so much history and that she wrote it without a particular message in mind or a particular axe to grind. Okay. Um, she wasn't interested in judging these people, only getting to know what their lives might have been like to create an experience for a reader in which they could understand what that moment of our past might really have been like. Okay. She says the great power of fiction is that it's not an argument. It's a world inhabit it for a while, say 300 pages and you're likely to come out a little changed. Yeah. And yeah, it sounds like the political argument is that this is a thing worth writing a book about and let's shine a light on that. Yeah. Um, it was not very hard for me to find like academic papers on this book. Oh, for sure. Um, because it is now like in a bunch of curricula in Australia. 
Um, I found one called Going Against the Flow, Kate Grenville's The Secret River and Colonialism's Structuring Oppositions by Anouk Long um, in a magazine, I think, or academic journal called Post-Colonial Text. Um, Talks about it like the things we mentioned earlier. It is trying to retell the myth of the convict who does not deserve his punishment, trying to retell the myth of the hardworking pioneer and myths around first contact. And it Mm -hmm. sounds like it's hit all three of those, at least in some way, shape, or form. Like, he's not like, he does succeed, and it is not just because he deserves to because he was punished unfairly or something. It sounds like he was punished. Uh, I mean, he committed a crime. Yeah, whether or not you deserve to be sent away for that. Yeah, 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 yeah should be a death sentence but then he goes and he steals land literally also so there's that true um and never yeah. convicted of that in mm. any no. well court yes <laughs> but that's not our courts are not set up to do that nope um okay uh i have another fact for you about Alrighty. australia um and then we'll close out on the other grenville book that we find interesting um, did you know that in 2015, a New York man sued Foster's, the beer company, for advertising lies? Because it's not Australian for beer? It was founded uh, by two Irish-American brothers who had emigrated from Melbourne to New York in the 1880s. Most of it is brewed locally in whatever country where it's purchased. Here in America, it is brewed in Fort Worth, Texas, among other (laughs) places. It is owned by AB InBev, which is your friendly global beer conglomerate. Uh, And the man claimed that the marketing copy made him think it was brewed in Australia, including the design, etc., and that that may have been leading uh, sellers to charge more for it as an import which apparently someone made a, a claim about like Bex or something uh, or Heineken and, and actually got like a class action suit because you're like, oh, you're charging it as an imported beer, but it's not actually an imported beer and you could get some money. I like, can't even tell you the last time I saw Foster's, Foster's for sale. Australian somewhere. for beer. Apparently, uh, that was almost news. Hmm. Uh, Foster, apparently people in Australia don't love Foster's. To surprise, surprise. Shocking. <laughs> to have your whole continent reduced to a beer. Um, that's my beer fact. Okay. I don't know if you have any other beer facts. Uh, since I don't drink beer, I, I have no beer facts. You've given up on beer facts? Yes. Fair enough. A number um, of years ago. So as we wrap up, I do want to bring up this book we both kind of clocked in our research, which was, what is it called? Is it called... Um, it is called Searching for the Secret River. And what is that book? Honey? Um, so Kate Grenville, um, in addition to being a fiction writer, um, has also written um, nonfiction, um, including some books about writing. Yes. <laughs> and she wrote Searching for the Secret River um, as basically a memoir about the writing of the Secret River. Um, so starting, um, as I mentioned from her ancestor, um, and then through the writing process and the research of historical documentation, um, that led her to the creation of these other characters, um, and the sort of second part of the book that is not as strongly based on her ancestor, which I think is really fascinating. Um, and I don't know that I have ever heard of a historical fiction author writing their book and then writing a book about how they wrote their book. It's kind of like that 
podcast that HBO made about Chernobyl. You know yes, how they made, and I did enjoy that very much. They made that companion podcast with Peter Sagal of all people, with the guy who made the show, who's not from Ukraine, mm-hmm. and was like, "Let me tell a story about this, and let me tell you a story about all the things that we did differently, and show and you all the our, things that went into it to make it as accurate as it became." Yeah, the quote I found from her on this. The subject matter of the Secret River is so important and so politically charged, I didn't want readers to be able to say, oh, it's only a novel, she just made it all up. The events and characters in the novel are adapted from the historical record. These things really did happen on our frontier, even if at a slightly different time and in a different place. I wanted readers to be able to retrace the journey I took in, coming to terms with what I found out about our history, and to see how I chose to adapt it for a novel. Um, she's taken some heat for like one or two comments she made about like what historical fiction can do vis-a-vis history writing. She used like a metaphor about like getting up on a ladder and being able to like get above the fray of what are called the history wars, which is an actual term Mm -hmm. uh, for how they talk about these issues in Australia. And people were like, what do you mean you're going to get above history? And she's like, no, I doesn't know what I meant. All that to say, this is an interesting, it's, it's fascinating to me that she decided to make this like while she was writing the novel. Mm-hmm. That's kind of neat. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. I don't know what is next on my bookshelf. I don't know if it will be searching for the secret river, <laughs> but um, I am fascinated by that idea. Um, and um, as somebody who enjoys reading historical fiction, it might be something that has to go on my reading list um, yeah. to understand sort of, the journey that she would take. Um, and since she does have an academic background, I imagine that it would be probably a easy thing to read in terms of the way that she would speak about things, yeah, having yeah, written yeah. writing process books and, and teaching creative writing for universities, things like that, um, that she would be a good person to sort of learn that process from. Yeah. Um, I don't have any aspirations to become a historical fiction author. Um, no, no. Okay. I mean, lots of people start things, you know, at any point in their lives. Sure. Maybe I'd go for children's books. <laughs> I think you would write good children's books. <laughs> We've talked about this. Uh, so that's the show, I think. Yeah. Unless you have any other questions. No. Just how you doing? I'm good. Yeah. You have fun? Uh-huh. Okay. Thanks for doing the show with me. You're welcome. Uh, If our listeners have any thoughts about uh, Australia or about the miniseries adaptation of The Secret River that maybe we'll watch soon, you can send them in to overduepod at gmail.com or hit us up on social media at twitter.com or facebook.com slash overduepod. A lot of folks who enjoyed our fountainhead episode in as much as you can enjoy such a thing um reached out in the past week thanks to Lindsay, is jennifer rachel emily laura not you honey a different laura sorry uh charlene jason jesse alex marilyn jamie stacy and many more um if folks want to know more about the show honey where should they go uh to your internet website yes which is overdue podcast.com yes and what do you think is up there um links to your episodes and your rss feeds whatever that means Uh um 
and links to where they can buy the books that you read. Yes. Um, and other hey. news and information. I don't know. Other news? <laughs> yes. Uh, head Gumball Podcast Network, uh, patreon.com slash overdupod if you want to give us money for things like Kathy did so that we would read this book. Yeah, thanks, Kathy. Yeah. Uh, and our December schedule should be up, but in case you haven't read it yet, let me tell you that this was the first book, uh, The Secret River by Kate Grenville. Uh, next week we're doing A Cricket in Times Square by George Selden, followed by The Air Affair by Jasper Ford. Then we're going to be reading Home for Hanukkah by Celine Banks. It's the Sexy Sylvie book number one. That's our holiday special. And then I'm going to close out the month with The Mists of Avalon by Marianne Zimmer Bradley. And we have a bonus episode, Lamb the Gospel According to Biff by Christopher Moore. So it's an action-packed December. Indeed. Lots of books. Honey, thanks for taking one of them. You're welcome. And that's it. That's the show. What do we say? What does Andrew say at the end of every episode? Uh, and until next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.